This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the fourth of the monthly expert panel discussions. Now, as I mentioned in the past, each month I'll be hosting discussions and debates between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration, land management, and more. So if you're a subscribing member on Patreon, you'll also be invited to the live events and the open Q&A for listeners after this panel. Now, in this session, I hosted a discussion on regenerating agricultural soil with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, which is a nonprofit organization working to advance regenerative agriculture in Europe. Now, in this panel, I got two of my favorite educators on the subject of soil science together to talk about how to build fertility and holistic health in agricultural soils. Now, since these discussions are longer than the regular weekly episodes, I'll keep the introduction short and jump right into the introductions for our two panelists. First off, we've got Dr. Elaine Ingham. Now, Dr. Ingham discovered the soil food web nearly four decades ago and has been pioneering research ever since. She's widely considered the world's foremost soil biologist and is passionate about empowering ordinary people to bring soils in their community back to life. Now, Dr. Elaine's soil food web approach has been used to successfully restore the ecological function of soils on six continents. She's helped to make soil health knowledge available to people with no relevant experience, making it accessible to individuals who wish to retrain and to begin a meaningful and impactful career in an area that will help to secure the survival of humans and other species. Now, our second panelist is John Kempf who has taken on the bold mission of having regenerative models of agricultural management become the mainstream globally by the year 2040. In addition to being a former grower himself, John is the founder of Advancing Eco-Agriculture, Crop Health Labs, Ozadaya, and the Regenerative Agriculture Academy. He also hosts the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, where he interviews top growers and scientists about the principles and practice of implementing regenerative agriculture on a large scale. So let's jump right in. So thank you both for being here. It's a great it's a great opportunity to speak to you again. And to start us off, I would like to pose the question, what is the potential that both of you see if we're able to reverse the trends of soil degradation through all forms of cultivation and stewardship? What would be the impact on the food system, the farming lifestyles, the climates and our waterways if we're able to achieve this goal of repairing soils around the world, perhaps starting with Elaine. Well, the the answer to the, the question is kind of how far out do you want to go? Because um, what you know, how what's the timeline? Because realistically, if we start adopting the kinds of things that John and I both talk about, um, we're going to live in Eden. Where it's back to the garden. Um, you walk outside and you you know, take the food, fruit off the trees, you uh, have your garden, it's right there. And it's got all the um, plants have maximum nutrition that they possibly can hold because every second of every day with good healthy food web in your soil functioning for that plant, that plant is going to get every single nutrient properly balanced for that plant because you have the biology in the soil up and running the way it's supposed to. You balance the fungal to bacterial ratio, you've got the right amount of predators. And so that plant's getting all the nutrients it needs. It's protected above and below ground by 
all these microorganisms on those surfaces, the, the pests and diseases, the um, parasites, don't even know the plant's there because it's so well protected. Uh, the roots go down as deep as they can and structure has been formed in the soil. There aren't any compaction layers. The plant can get to that summer water stored by snow melt or by rainfall in the springtime. Us as human beings don't really have to do anything more than plant the seed. What do you wanna put in here this summer? Uh, what do you want to actually grow? And so the plants, the, the seeds, the starts go into the soil. And other than that, once you have that biology back in the soil and it's working full time and you're feeding it by having understory plants present in the system, you can go fishing for the rest of the summer um, or whatever you care to do, hiking in the mountains. Um, you do have to come back every once in a while and check and make sure that there's no little surprises starting to happen. But it's almost from my point of view, that's a perfect lifestyle. You don't have to get involved in stressful, nasty human interactions where we're fighting over something that we shouldn't fight over in the first place. Abundance is easy to come by if you start understanding what you're doing with that biology with the plants with the animals and yep it's in systems that have to be understood completely so you can tell when something's wrong you have to have that microscope to be able to tell you when something is starting to go wrong by the time you've got dead and dying plants uh, you messed up you didn't pay attention to what mother nature was trying to tell you and so she's going to visit death and destruction upon your garden. Um, so we need to learn all those signals. We need to learn how to read that book of, of Mother Nature. So I've probably gone on and on for way too long. So I'll, I'll stop here. <laughs> That's okay. That's a wonderful vision. John, can you tell us what you see as a vision for healthy soils around the world, especially in the agricultural context where you're used to working? I'd like to expand the conversation beyond just healthy soils. I think Elaine mentioned this and described it very well, but um, we, rather than <clears throat> focusing exclusively on a conversation about a healthy soil food web, the ultimate expression of a healthy soil food web is a healthy life web. And Elaine, uh, you described this very well. Uh, we need to also look at and consider the health of the plants that are growing on that, that landscape, the health of the livestock and the people that are consuming those plants. So to summarize it as succinctly as I can, I would say that nutritional integrity and microbiome integrity is at the foundation of health for the entire living ecosystem. And those are the things that we need to manage as um, farmers, as farm managers, as producers, whatever our role is in the larger ecosystem. And when you consider those two aspects and the, the future that can be brought about, I look at it from a very practical perspective. Is our agronomic management, our management of that microbiome and our management of the nutritional integrity, is that bringing about resistance to parasites in livestock and people? Is it bringing about disease resistance? Is it bringing about insect resistance? If the answers are yes, then those are from a very practical foundational perspective. Those are the outcomes that we seek and the outcomes that are possible. And if that is not happening, then we need to change our management systems. 
Well said. And with that positive idea moving forward about what it is that we can achieve, there are some things, especially with how popular soil science and awareness around building biology in the soil has been in the last handful of years, there's also been a lot of myths and misconceptions or misunderstandings about how to achieve this. John, can you speak to some of those that you've seen perhaps in popular culture and social media that are misleading or not really helping to advance a clear understanding about how to build healthy and biologically rich soils? Um, <laughs> that's a very big, broad, open-ended question, Oliver, because there are, uh, there are so many um, misconceptions that um, it's hard to know where to begin. Perhaps uh, I'll point out to one that I've spoken to frequently, which is the idea that it takes healthy soil to grow healthy plants. And that isn't necessarily incorrect, but it most certainly is incomplete because we need to ask the follow-up question of what is it that creates healthy soils? And what creates healthy soils is the contribution of plants. It is plants that contribute carbon. It's plants that contribute root exudates. And thus it is plants that provide the food source for biology to thrive. So um, I've made the comment in the past that without the contribution of plants, soil is little more than decomposed rock particles because there is nothing there for the biology to feed on. And so when we ask the question, the, the kind of the, if, the, if the idea is that it takes healthy soil to grow healthy plants, the next step, the immediate obvious next question should be, what does it take to grow really healthy soils or to produce really healthy soils? And the answer to that question, in my opinion, is it takes really healthy plants and large populations of photosynthesizing plants to feed that soil biology. So I think that's one piece we need to consider. And then something else we need to consider is that uh, as Elaine has so eloquently described in her work, um, microbial populations have an incredible capacity to release nutrients from the existing soil mineral matrix and make them available to crops. And that is where plants and crops should be getting their nutrition. And we also need to consider the geological context if we are working with soils that are based on a foundational bedrock that is completely absent some critical nutrients, we need to consider where those plants are going to source those nutrients from. So those are a few that come to mind. Um, and I'll, I'll just add one last thought, which is that um, what we observe on large scale production agriculture is that most nutritional imbalances are not a result of what is absent in the soil. They are a result of the excessive fertilizers that farmers apply that create deficiencies of other elements. Fantastic. I see some nodding in agreement and some questioning looks from Elaine's side. Can you give a rebuttal of what you just heard and maybe add some of the myths and misconceptions that you see out there? Um, yeah, when we get into specifics, there's a lot of misconceptions, but I don't think we're really going to be talking at that scale today where, uh, you know, making compost and, and the things uh, that people mess up on, um, but when yeah, when we when we're talking about healthy soil and healthy plants, it's a little bit uh, kind of just uh, dealing with grammar, maybe a little bit. But I want to take us back to the whole process of succession. Um, when an ecosystem has been destroyed because of fire, extreme fire or uh, extreme flooding, um, the the whole mountainside came down on you and now there's just highly disturbed dirt. Um, most of the biology is gone. The first thing that comes back into that um, 
material, uh, and it's really, I'm going to call it dirt because that's what it is. You don't have the food web in it right, um, because of the disturbance factor. Um, and yet the first thing that comes back into that system is not a plant. It's going to be microorganisms that are photosynthetic. And so they provide that first step into harnessing carbon, the energy of uh, the sunlight, binding those two carbon atoms together, then the third atom and then the fourth atom of carbon fifth and starting to build sugars. So, you know, we start off right at the soil level of we do need to understand how you get through that highly disturbed dirt stage of life. And it's going to be the microorganisms that are doing that work. Of course, as soon as you've got bacteria growing, um, now you're having some decomposition occurring and along come the predators. You're going to be seeing the protozoa coming into the system pretty rapidly to eat those bacteria and start setting up nutrient cycling. It's not until you have enough of that nutrient cycling process occurring that um, rooted plants can come into that system. So it gets to be kind of a chicken and an egg question. What comes first, plants or the microorganisms that they feed? And then the microorganisms feed the plants back the nutrients they require. And what is it that really causes that successional process to shift? How do you get from... Uh, just algae and lichens and moss growing on the surface of your dirt. What is it that allows those first weeds to start growing in your system? So you've got to accumulate enough bacteria, enough protozoa, enough um, bacterial feeding nematodes to start that process of nutrient cycling or plants aren't possible. So you, now you have very weedy systems. That's not what we want for agriculture. Well, we have to start getting the fungi back into the system so that um, you can have the NH4 in the soil. The ammonia must be present um, at, a, at certain levels, depending on what weeds you want to grow or what crop plants you want to grow. There's been a series of papers out of um, a number of universities in Japan where I went and talked with them many years ago at this point, but I think I kind of started them down this pathway of saying, okay, what's the balance of nitrate and ammonium? What effect does that have on plant production? And when nitrate is very high, that means you're going to be growing weeds and just weeds. And if you have your crop plants in the system, ouch, it's going to be unpleasant until you can finally get ammonium starting to come into that system. And it's when um, that ammonium and that nitrate kind of shift in, in space. Now you can have highly productive shrubs and deciduous forests and eventually conifers. So that whole successional process, you've got to get fungi started. Well, what starts the fungi growing in these systems? They've got to have food. And so what provides that is indeed the plants, just as, as John said, if you understand this whole successional system in its entirety we've what really starts everything is the biology in the soil and then the plants can come in and because those plants make cellulose now we've got some fungal foods now the fungi can start growing now your plants can start making lignin because you've got the fungi there 
And now the lignin is food to feed better different kinds of species better because from my point of view, because I like forests more than I like grasslands. Um, what's more beautiful? Okay, I'm a, I'm a child of the environment I grew up in, Minnesota, um, all those lakes and forests. Yeah, um, I've the most peaceful place I can imagine is sitting in the middle of a Minnesota mixed pine and deciduous forest and listening to the birds and the frogs and everything. Uh, that's my piece. Um, that's where I go to meditate. So um, the um, so nutrient cycling, all of that um, depends on a synergy. It's an, an interaction with both plants and microorganisms. So maybe we don't need to have that competition. We don't need to invoke that one's better than the other or it, it, we're not going to have Eden if we don't put it all back together. Mm. Well, thank you for not only explaining that, but also bringing me back to my childhood because I grew up in Minnesota as well with that idea in the background and the 15,000 lakes around that uh, that takes me back to. Now, John, um, in order to get a better understanding of your soil, you have to do some kind of analysis and some tests. And I know you work with growers all around the United States, and I'm sure have consulted in many other places too, about the best way to assess the state of health or degradation that your soil is in. And a lot of people are asking whether it's really worth getting professional lab tests, or if there's a lot of analysis that you can do on the site without having to go to higher tech methods to learn a lot about what's happening underneath the ground. What advice would you give on that front? Um, it depends on how dedicated you are and the outcomes that you desire and how rapidly you desire them, I suppose. Um, so I actually uh, gave an hour-long in-depth webinar on how our perspective on this has evolved over the last 15 years that posted on YouTube just this last week, I think. I don't, I'm not even sure what the clip is called. But um, I believe that ultimately plants are the final report card. If we talk about disease and insect resistance, plants are the ultimate indicator of what is actually truly going on in the soil and they are much more accurate than a laboratory analysis. But, uh, and so in, in our work, in our professional work, we have worked with sap analysis uh, very closely to evaluate how the uh, nutrients, uh, how the plants are absorbing nutrients from the soil profile. And that of course gives us indications into the soil's microbial activity, organic matter levels and so forth. And um, so our, kind of where we are at this moment after collecting lots of data for the last decade and a half is that uh, we use sap analysis during the growing season to monitor the crop's nutrient absorption and performance. And we use, um, we still use the typical CEC soil analysis just because they are what many farmers are familiar with, but we have a growing um, distrust for them because we find that those nutrient analysis do not correlate with actual measured plant nutrient absorption with the exception of a very few nutrients there is no correlation um, and so our work today we usually pull in terms of a nutrient assay we pull a single geological analysis like a mining analysis mining extraction for each given soil type that can tell us the total nutrient profile of what is in that soil and you only need to do that one time and that gives you an indication of the nutrient reserves that biology can access and can tap into and can make available to crops. And it's important to know this because 
some soil types based on the geological uh, bedrock foundational parent material uh, may not have certain nutrients that crops need and uh, the, and get the majority may be there in abundance. So this is very valuable to actually see what the foundational parent material is that you have to work with. And then we also, we do still continue to pull CEC analysis, um, largely just from a psychological grower comfort perspective, uh, more than from an agronomic use perspective almost. We still, we use them primarily for calcium, magnesium balance, and perhaps a few other things, but uh, we're using them very minimally anymore. And then uh, we're also using, just started in the last two years, widely using the Haney analysis because that seems to correlate much more accurately with actual measured plant nutrient absorption. And it seems to connect with the bio biological capacity to deliver nutrients. And within the last year and going forward in this current growing season, we're anxious to do a lot more work with um, measuring biological profiles because that has been a perceived weakness that we have observed in our own systems that uh, we haven't yet been comfortable with many of the microbial bioassays for uh, repeatability and reliability. Um, obviously, your great work Elaine with microscope and microscopic analysis is, is foundational, but it's also user dependent and uh, many farmers don't have the bandwidth or the desire to engage with that. So that's something that we are actively evaluating and uh, working on including more and that's kind of where we are at the moment. Dr. Elaine, can you talk about some of the most important things that people should be trying to evaluate in their soils in the best way or perhaps even most economical way for growers to do that? Yeah, um, we like to avoid the chemistry tests because uh, they don't, you know, just as John was saying, uh, they don't really tell you about the potential pool of nutrients. Um, they'll tell you what the, uh, and typically, the chemistry tests that we, you get from a chemistry lab is only going to be telling you about the soluble inorganic pool of nutrients. Maybe if you do a little um, uh, you know, work on calcium magnesium uh, ratios, you're going to get a little bit of, about um, cation exchange capacity, but it doesn't tell you what the biology is going to be able to convert from plant not available into plant available. Knowing the organisms and the biomass of the bacteria and fungi are going to tell you a, a lot about that nutrient cycling process, the potential. If you then also add the uh, protozoa, the nematodes, the microarthropods into that biological assessment of your soil, you'll get to understand the rate at which those nutrients are going to be made available. And of course, it's all of the organisms together that um, allow you to understand the balance, that you're getting the balance of all of the nutrients, not just nitrogen or phosphorus or sulfur or magnesium, but everything. And your plant requires all of those nutrients. Quite often, a plant is actually um, going to be restricted from being able to grow because of some minor, or we call them micronutrients, um, still means that you've got to have that micronutrient present in in adequate um, amounts. And most of the time when I look at parent material and try to understand what are the nutrients that are going to be made available or can be made available, um, we're going to be able to um, assess that um, because it's the biology that is causing that uh, shift into plant available. And in fact, I, I don't know of any parent material 
that lacks any of the nutrients that your plant requires. There's some strange marine sands that have been sitting at the bottom of the ocean for the last, you know, 10 billion years. Well, maybe not that long, but for a very long time. And by the time they're scraped up against the, um, you know, the shoreline and they form dunes, that's not soil. That That's dirt, that's sand. There's serious lacks in some of those things. They've got to get mixed into the parent material um, that the bacteria and fungi are breaking down on a daily basis. There's a huge amount of nutrient being released from rocks and pebbles and sand, silt and clay and parent material, boulders, all of that. So nutrients aren't lacking in your soil. You may be lacking the microorganisms to convert them into an available plant available form. And so that's what you need to know. So we encourage people to use a microscope and especially for people who are not professionals. The idea is that um, we want you to take one teaspoon of your soil and mix in four teaspoons of water, shake it for 30 seconds, a drop goes on the microscope slide, you look at it. You don't have to quantify everything. So you want to get a good idea of the uh, um, number of bacteria in, in that sample. How, what's the diversity of bacteria? Are you seeing lots of different sizes and shapes? Then you've got good diversity. Take a look at you know, 10, 20, 30 of the uh, fields of view on that microscope slide that you've um, put together. And how much, how variable are those bacterial numbers? Well, be looking for fungi too. So we give you, we teach people how to um, measure what is a look, look at, identify, sorry, identify what are fungal hyphae. What are the good guy fungal hyphae? What are the bad guy fungal hyphae? Um, and they're fairly distinguishable. Things that fall into that oh my seed category, which people are arguing, taxonomists are arguing right now whether those are actually fungi at all. Um, but I don't really care about that because I know it's the omycetes that cause a great deal of the diseases. And that's what we need to be able to identify. If the only thing you're seeing in your soil is omycete, uh, you should be worried right now. And you should do the things necessary to bring back in the biology that will take out those bad guys. Well, what if you've got the not desirable protozoa? You want to have just the good guy protozoa. How do you get the protozoa back into your soil? You've got to be making compost. There's your inoculum of all the organisms that you need. So long before the plant starts showing that there's something wrong down there in the soil and their roots have been massively attacked enough to start showing you above ground that there are problems. We want to be looking at the soil and fixing those problems before any problems ever start to occur. So that's yeah, chemi chemical assessment of the soil. It's not telling you what you need to know soon enough. Um, so if you can learn to just use the simple microscopy, have you seen any protozoa, any of the good guys in your soil as you're looking through your soil sample on the microscope? No you've got a problem. If you're seeing a goodly number, okay, 
could be, you know, you start feeding lots of bacteria and fungi, they're going to eat those bacteria and fungi and now things may balance out. Just keep an eye on them as you go through the growing season and you'll know in advance what's going wrong in the soil. Well, given that we're kind of trying to suss out a lot of practical information, especially in these calls, because a lot of our audience are farmers and especially market gardeners, can you talk about some of the best ways to add that microbiome back into the soil if it's lacking or how to build healthy soil, especially for that intensive annual vegetable production that a lot of our farmers are working with? Yep. So um, in the fall, you know, so when you start out next fall, please um, get a microscope, get a little bit of knowledge about what these different organisms look like so you can start to identify them. And that's what our foundation classes do for people. Well, the, the fourth foundation course is all about teaching you how to use the microscope and how to identify these organisms. We don't have to go down to genus species, not by any means. We just want to put them into the basic feeding groups. So bacterial feeding, fungal feeding, um, bacterial decomposition, fungal decomposition. So we have a good idea of um, what um, you have in the soil. And if you see that you're lacking any of those organisms, then you're going to want to think about making compost. And wintertime is a great time to make compost because you don't have a whole lot of other things to do typically. Um, you know, if you're in tropical areas, it's during the dry time of the year. That's, that's winter from a tropical point of view is when you don't have enough water for anything to grow. What else do you have to do? Make compost. And so you want to collect your starting materials. Um, we have certain um, recipes for the compost, depending on whether you're in arid or not arid parts of the world. So um, typically they're going to be around 10% high nitrogen. That's party food. That's gonna, in a thermal pile, that's gonna be what gets those bacteria and fungi growing so rapidly that they increase the temperature. When you think about one bacterium becoming two bacteria, there's a significant increase in temperature because of the heat of reproduction. So um, if you've getting, you're getting a thousand bacteria all reproducing in the same 20 minutes, how, how about a million? How about about 10 million? You're definitely going to be increasing the temperature in that pile. And we want that temperature to get above 131 degrees Fahrenheit for a full three days because you will kill all the weed seed. You'll kill all the seed in that plant material that you put into the pile. Um, we want to be able to kill all of the human pathogens, all the animal pathogens. And because their cell wall structure is so different from the more um, environmentally survivable bacteria and fungi, the bacteria, the disease-causing bacteria and fungi are highly susceptible to those temperatures for fairly short periods of time. If you can get above 150 for um, 48 hours. Um, 160, 65 for um, 24 hours, you're going to kill those pathogens and pass some parasites. They're dead. One of the few times I actually enjoy something dying is when we're dealing with the bad guys. What's growing? What's causing the temperature in that pile? And it drives me crazy when somebody says, um, now that your pile has reached 175 degrees, your pile is sterile. Um, but how does the temperature remain 
high at 170, 175, how can it be maintained if you've got a sterile pile? So it's not sterile. There are lots of organisms that tolerate and grow and reproduce at those temperatures. When those organisms start running out of the simple foods, they've used them all up. So that's why we're putting in 30% green and 60% woody. Now you're you know, going to have really good food for both the bacteria and fungi. Bacteria like the green stuff, fungi like the woody stuff. If your woody material doesn't impose, is it that there's something wrong with my recipe? Or is it because you don't have the organisms that decompose that woody material? So there's a method, message from Mother Nature. You should have uh, uh, had put an inoculum of, of as high a diversity of fungi as you possibly could at the beginning of that composting process. You might be putting in some diseases and problem organisms if you're just going around collecting starting materials, but fine, that's why we're composting. That's why we're using a thermal composting process so that they'll, the bad guys will be killed, the good guys will flourish and multiply and you'll have massive diversity. Try to get as many different kinds of woody materials, uh, brown materials as possible. The more diversity is going to result because you get lots of different starting materials. Don't just put in uh, wood chips from pine, put in wood chips from aspen and poplar and apple trees and um, everything you can possibly think of a little bit of everything because that increases diversity and, and that means your soil is going to be able to deal with problems all the, the, the year long so um, compost thermal composting we um, go through that whole process with you in our foundation courses well what if you're not really into thermal composting because you got to pay attention to a, comp a thermal compost pile because it is getting to be high temperature and you better be watching and taking its temperature every day during the 10 to 15 days that it needs to be at high temperatures. As soon as it starts cooling off, then fine. You don't have to pay much attention to that pile at all. But what if, you know, you just don't, your lifestyle doesn't, that's just not going to fit into your lifestyle. Then you make worm compost instead. It's the same kinds of starting materials, except you're not going to put the high nitrogen in or you don't need to put the high nitrogen in. So let the worms do the job of changing the sets of microorganisms that are present in that plant material. And earthworms come with a, uh, their whole back end of the, of the worm is just a massive uh, growth chamber for some of the best species of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes that you can collect in your surroundings. The, you know, don't get the earthworms from just one little spot in the forest. Go out and take one worm from here and another worm from over there and another worm and another worm and another worm. There's some really interesting work by David Johnson where he's been looking at the um, species of bacteria. When you inoculate just one population of earthworm, you only have the same set of microorganisms in all your worm pins. And that means a limited diversity. So there has to be, you know, now that we know this, we have to start saying, don't just get one batch of earthworm. You want to get, you know, maybe 10 or 20. 
So go to everybody else's worm bin pile and take a little bit with you and get those organisms inoculated into the pile. So I don't know if I've answered all of your question, but I think I've probably run out of my fair share of the time here. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Those are all great suggestions. John, same to you. What recommendations do you give, especially to intensive annual vegetable growers on how they can provide the adequate nutrition in their soil to have a successful growing season? Building on uh, what you just described, Elaine, um, I think compost, vermicompost, or thermocompost, different, uh, also Johnson Sioux bioreactors, compost is a very valuable and very necessary contribution in these very intensely, intensively managed uh, production ecosystems for market gardens and so forth. And our experience, uh, I would suggest two additional pieces that we should consider adding to that. Uh, one of them is purchased inoculants. And my um, experience with purchased inoculants comes as a result of, um, I guess, let me, let me say it this way. Uh, we know that we have, my understanding is that we have very rapid uh, exchange of genetic information between different groups of soil microbial communities. And we live in an environment today where depending on our comp where our compost materials are coming from, uh, we get exposure to um, lots of different pesticides and lots of hydrocarbons. And it's possible for us to get microbial inoculants that have the genetic information to bioremediate those hydrocarbons very quickly. And our experience has been that when we apply these types of biology to agricultural soils, we get surprisingly strong crop responses. So we're evaluating the effect of, this, of these materials based on crop response. And a crop response has been really extraordinary. So I think that's something that we should really consider and keep our eyes open for. And then I would also add that um, while compost is a very valuable, or inoculants and or inoculants are very valuable and I believe necessary contributions, we also need to remember that there are many soil microbial populations that can only thrive and reproduce in the presence of a living root system. Mycorrhizae fungi are perhaps the classical example, there's many others as well. And so I would suggest that one other piece that, need, that we need to consider is we need to grow diverse crops and cover crops that can feed an abundant microbial population. And that is also foundational to really regenerating our soil's microbial community. So um, I, I was asked to do a presentation a couple of months ago for the uh, Bionutrient Food Association, where uh, I was asked to put together kind of these high level principles of how do we develop these market garden soils to very high levels and very high plateaus of performance. And my recommendation was that fundamentally we need to consider the living microbial zone in the soil, whether that's a depth of four inches or 20 inches. We need to manage that as if though we were managing a Petri dish in a laboratory, or you could say as if though you were managing a sheet composting pile. So that means that you cannot let it be exposed to the sun because when you expose it to the sun, high levels of oxidizing radiation, that is going to shut down microbial populations. Um, and you need to manage water, particularly excessive water. So we live in a very different world today from what we need. And we need to acknowledge that we, we have um, vagaries of the climate that are much more severe than they were even a decade or two decades ago. So soil biology recover, can recover quite nicely from drying out. And obviously it also recovers from being saturated, but our experience has been that uh, in these biologically managed systems, 
having saturated soils for extended periods of time really does a number on the soil biological population and on crop performance. It's much more damaging than having soils dry out. And so I believe it is critical importance for us that we need to develop our, um, our rainfall management in the landscape to the point where we have the capacity to handle three to five inches of rain in 24 hours. That seems to be happening multiple times per season in many parts of the world. So um, whether that means very shallow subsurface uh, irrigation, whether that means contouring to move surface water off, whatever it is that that means for the local landscape, uh, that piece needs to be figured out because keeping soil saturated for extended periods of time is a significant problem for that petri dish in the microbially active zone. So those are the thoughts that I would add. Well, while we're on the topic of soil amendments, and seeing as it's a large part of the business that you run too, is, is uh, the inoculants for kickstarting the function of the ecology. Can you tell us about some of those inoculants that you found most successful and most applicable on a broad sense, but again, especially towards the market gardening or vegetable production side, just because it's a large portion of our, <laughs> of our farmers at the moment? Yeah, um, I didn't really come here to do an infomercial, and I guess I'm really not actually when I start to think about it, because uh, with, we actually don't produce any microbial inoculants on our own. Um, so what we use commercially is uh, we use mycorrhizal fungi inoculants on uh, just about every time a seed is planted, and uh, particularly for annual crops. And if you have a perennial ecosystem uh, or crops that have living roots present all the time, the intention and the goal should be to establish a population of mycorrhizal fungi and other fungi that does not need to be constantly re-inoculated. And so it's certainly been successful with that. We often uh, inoculate only for the first year or two um, and then expect that population to maintain itself. Um, and then uh, we also use a microbial inoculants from Tineo Technology. And uh, the reason we use that company's products is because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when we first started, we did extensive uh, research in the field uh, comparing different companies' products. And when we look at purchased inoculants, um, I'm sure Elaine could give us a long list of, uh, of possible downsides. And they do have potential possible, I shouldn't say downsides, but um, potential lack of effectiveness uh, because their effectiveness is really context dependent. Uh, it depends on where you put them and how, you, how they're managed. And uh, the question that should be asked of, of those people who manufacture microbial inoculants is not how much does it improve crop performance, how much does it improve yield or whatever the case might be. Instead, the question is, what percentage of the time do you observe crop results or not observe crop results? Um, it's a much better question to ask because these, and it's, in fact, it's a better question to ask not just of microbial inoculants, but of, of biological practices in general because uh, the reality is that the results are really context dependent on what's happening in that local geology and in that local landscape. Okay, and Elaine, perhaps expanding more on the compost side of things, since you're very well known for that specialty, there's been a number of questions about different forms of compost, especially different uh, anaerobic methods and aerobic methods like, uh, like Bokashi and others. Could you say a few words on the applications and the different efficacies of those different types? Well, it's, um, I think, you know, we probably have a little controversy going with, uh, 
you know, what is Korean natural farming with the use of the anaerobic compost teas. And it's not that anaerobic compost teas don't have a, a role and function. You just need to know what that role and function is. Um, you go and make purposely make something anaerobic. The aerobic organisms that were on those um, bits and, and pieces of soil um, and organic matter in that compost tea, they're going to either, um, well, their enzymes only function when the oxygen is at a certain level or above. As that oxygen starts to get restrictive for the aerobic organisms, they're either going to die if the loss of oxygen is very rapid, many of those bacteria or fungi or protozoa or nematodes are, are going to just out and out die because it's too fast to change for them. If there's enough time, they will produce spores. And so they'll make it out the other end. Whenever that material is um, gets aerated again, those organisms will germinate and start to grow. So it's not like you know, complete and total um, wipeout. Um, you just have to control the system so that those aerobic organisms have enough time to produce the spores, the dormant stages. So now you've dropped down into um, anaerobic below six um, um, pound PPM, PPM and uh, your anaerobic organisms are starting to wake up because now their enzymes are working, they're functioning in the atmosphere that lacks oxygen. And now they're capable of taking all of these, you know, proteins and amino acids and sugars and lipopolysaccharides, et cetera, and converting that into more bacteria. And they're releasing waste products that are typically organic acids. A lot of them are volatile organic acids. You're gonna lose your nitrogen into the atmosphere because um, those uh, bacteria have converted the NO3 or the NH4 into um, NH2. Um, so um, you're losing, uh, and it's not NH2, it's N2, sorry. Um, too many things going through my head all at the same time. So you're gonna lose that nitrogen as a gas, as ammonia, NH3. Um, with your sulfur, your sulfur in the aerated forms, SO4, SO3, SO2. So all of your sulfur compounds in your soils will be converted or in that compost tea will be converted into H2S, um, hydrogen sulfide, which smells like rotten eggs. So you can detect when this is happening. You can detect the smell of ammonia um, and you're losing nutrients. So now what good is it that for, for you to be putting that compost tea on your soil because you've lost the very nutrients that you wanted to have get into your soil. Um, you're producing organic acids. You're producing um, like a, a C, acetic acid vinegar is a very common one. Lactic acid is another very common one. Um, a, a whole slew of them. And you can watch your pH drop in your compost tea from, you might've started out at you know seven, um, 7.5, it starts to drop down to 6.5, um, five, five and a half, four. I have seen compost teas that have ended up with a, uh, with a pH uh, around three. So imagine what you're doing when you're taking a liquid 
that is that low in pH, that acidic, and now you're spraying it on your plants. You can kill a lot of stuff with that. Well, it's really a pesticide now, isn't it? It's not a positive um, nutrient fertilizer. It's now something that is so acidic that you're going to cause some trouble perhaps. And we've seen that sort of problem with the burning marks around the edges of the leaves when you let that get too anaerobic. So um, what if you don't let it get that anaerobic? Well, it's a really good um, fungicide. So um, you can put those organic acids out and you can really knock back something like a verticillium or a pythium or a phytopter infection um, on your, the surfaces of your plants or down in the root system. So you're gonna wipe out a lot of those organisms so you can have a, a beneficial effect from that, but by applying all of those um, organic acids to your soil, you've killed a lot of the beneficials as well. So how much damage has been done to the disease-causing organisms, yay! How much damage has been done to the beneficial organisms that would, they should be there to help your system recover? Well, you killed them. So if you don't do anything, what's gonna come back into the soil on its own? In about two to maybe three weeks, what you find is that the disease-causing organisms have recovered more rapidly because that's their life history strategy. As if just one cell survives, it's going to become um, um, six million um, cells by tomorrow. And the day after, it's going to be a billion cells. And the day after, yep, now you've got the disease coming right back at you or another disease coming along behind the first one that you hopefully got rid of. So if you do use those anaerobic teas, let me recommend to you that the way to allow you to use the anaerobic teas is to immediately come back with a good compost, a fully aerobic compost tea, where you have all the active, growing, living, healthy, happy aerobes in that system who can rebuild the structure in the soil, who can deal with those um, organic acids and convert them back into bacterial and fungal biomass. So it's not like it, you know, you you would never think to do this. No, 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 that's not what I said. Um, know what you're doing. Know what what's the consequence of altering the biology like this. And you know, where you have those kind of specific questions, give me a call or you know, uh, info at soilfoodweb.com um, to at, you know, get some of your questions answered. Yes, we are going to charge you for our time answering your questions. Sorry, we've got to stay alive too. I have to pay all these salaries. <laughs> so um, understanding, and that's really what I want people to do is have an understanding of the consequences of what they're doing. And is it anaerobic or aerobic? And that's like what, what um, John was talking about, where you have water sitting in your field for weeks on end, you know, if the flooding is not infiltrate, well, why isn't the water going into your soil? Because you've got a compaction layer and there's no way that that water can drain. Eventually it's gonna either evaporate or it's gonna go downhill. And when that water goes downhill, it's taking 
a lot of your topsoil with it. You don't really want that to happen. You want infiltration. What builds infiltration? What takes out the com compaction and turns it back into good fluffy soil that you don't have to fluff? Well, it is the biology. So get the biology out there. Well, it's not doing the job yet. Okay, you don't have any understory plants. You've got to get out plants that are present and growing all year round. Uh, you really want something that's going to green up and start growing in the springtime before your crop goes in. Um, yep, you can have furrows and you drop your seed into the furrows, maybe along with a little microbial inoculum of all of the species, not just one or two species of bacteria, one or two species of fungi. Let's get the whole diversity. So you're not going to have growth just for a few weeks in the summertime. You're going to have growth aided and abetted by these really beneficial organisms throughout the whole entire growing season. So let's you know, get that biology out there. If you've got permanent understory plants, they're perennials. You only have to buy the seeds for them once in your entire lifetime. And then those understory plants will protect that soil surface from the impact of rain on the surface of the soil that is so destructive. Some, in some instances, rainfall is the most compacting thing you can get. Forget your tractor, forget your animals. It's rainfall if you've got bare soil. So get some vegetation, mulch if nothing else, to protect that soil surface and allow better infiltration. Don't allow that compaction. That, and usually people say, well, the rain doesn't compact my soil. Yes, it does. It just doesn't do it at the surface. It may do it down at three inches or six inches or 10 inches, depending on all kinds of factors. So I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll break off now. No, no, this is great. <laughs> and both from your comments and John's, we've had just an influx of extra questions and people are really engaged about these topics. I'm really thrilled about the reaction here. But since we focus so much on market gardening context for the most part up until now, let's talk briefly before we hand it over to listener questions about broader acreage applications. And there's a lot of talk between the most effective and the most, uh, I guess, economical way of regenerating soils on broad acreage, whether it's cover crops, whether it's rotational grazing, whether it's a mix of many different methods. John, can you start by talking about some of the results that you've seen out in larger acreage applications about yeah, broad applications of regenerating soil at an effective and economic scale. I'm very passionate about having regenerative agriculture become the status quo globally in the next two decades. And so I, I'm very deliberate about thinking and thinking about how do we get there from here? How do we achieve the point where we have 85% adoption globally by 2040? And um, I believe that if you want to achieve anything, you achieve what you incentivize. So it's very important for any types of recommendations that we make. Uh, if we want to have rapid adoption, we need to show an economic response immediately, not deferred three years, five years down the road, but there needs to be an immediate economic response. And so uh, this has been the foundation, one of the foundational thesis of our work at uh, Advancing Eco-Agriculture. We have observed um, when we, we constantly are evaluating different types of recommendations and the two recommendations that produce the most immediate economic response that facilitate the transition to regenerative agriculture are um, number one is 
uh, inoculants applied at planting as a seed treatment. They are relatively inexpensive, usually costing a few dollars per acre. And uh, while not always effective, they are effective consistently enough, often enough, that they deliver very strong ROI and they begin, to, they help facilitate that transition to a more regenerative approach. So that's one. The second um, most significant economic crop response is from the use of properly designed, and that's a key phrase, properly designed foliar applications of nutrients that are specifically designed to increase a plant's photosynthetic performance. And this is a key aspect, a key element that is completely missing from all that I have seen from all of our carbon sequestration research. It is assumed that photosynthesis is a constant. It's not. Photosynthesis is not a constant. Photosynthesis does not happen at a constant rate. Photosynthesis is highly variable based on the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, based on sunlight, based on available water and all these other things. And what we, what we consider to be normal, what we consider to be common is crops that are photosynthesizing somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15 to 20% of their inherent photosynthetic capacity. It's not reasonable to anticipate that we'll get to 100% capacity in an outdoor agriculture environment because that would require an ideal environment with an ideal context. Every, it would require everything to be optimal. That isn't likely to happen on a continual basis in most outdoor production agriculture, but it is, reason, it is reasonable to expect that we can get to 40% or 60% of photosynthetic capacity which would mean that we get two to three times more sugar production in each 24-hour photo period than what is presently common. Now, when you think about the implications of that, what does that mean for carbon sequestration? And that is never considered in any of the research that is being done on the capacity of agriculture ecosystems for carbon sequestration. So um, anyway, Getting back to the focus of your question, our observation has been that when foliar sprays are properly designed to increase that plant's photosynthetic capacity, plants capture a lot more carbon dioxide, they capture a lot more um, solar, light, uh, solar energy. This is, the photosynthesis is really the only way we have of bringing new energy into the ecosystem. So when we spike photosynthesis, that doesn't just mean we get more plant yield and more growth that offers an economic incentive to growers, it also means that we transmit much larger quantities of root exudates into the soil microbiome to feed soil biology, and we build biology much faster than we do with a normal crop. So I'm using this word normal or common in the context. We should ask what really is normal? Most of us don't really have any idea what healthy plants actually look like anymore. We think that a healthy plant is a plant that might have susceptibility to diseases and in insects. Well, if you have diseases and in insects, you do not have a healthy plant. It's really that simple. You do not have a plant that is photosynthesizing at optimal efficiency. And so um, I think it is worth pointing out. Uh, we, we have been framing this conversation up to this point largely in terms of managing biology, which is extremely important, but Increasing photosynthesis and increasing the quality and the health of an overall ecosystem it has a foundation on two pieces, micro microbiome integrity and nutritional integrity. 
those are certainly tied together. They're certainly synergistic, but because you have one does not necessarily mean you have the other. And in fact, in the case of, as, as Elaine pointed out earlier, you can have perfectly balanced chemistry in the soil according to a laboratory assay, but still have unhealthy plants. So we need to manage both of those systems very well. So anyway, um, we begin, when we first begin working with growers who want to make a transition on a large scale, I'm talking a scale of thousands or tens of thousands of acres, who want to make a transition to regenerative agriculture practices, we begin by looking at the cultural management practices and the use of products that will offer an immediate economic return this year. And then we compound that. And uh, we often don't begin with um, large compost applications uh, and the intensive use of cover crops in the first year. That is usually by, happens in year two or year three, depending again, of course, on context and local availability of resources. So um, everything is context dependent. All of these different practices that fit into regenerative principles are useful and appropriate. Some of them are just a lot more useful and more appropriate at specific times in a specific context than others. Thanks once again to our two panelists, Dr. Elaine Ingham and John Kempf, who are both working tirelessly to create a healthier and more resilient farm culture around the world. I highly recommend that you check out their work. You can find Dr. Elaine's company at SoilFoodWeb.com and John's at both AdvancingEcoAg.com and JohnKempf.com. And a special thanks to the team at Climate Farmers for organizing the event and to all the wonderful people who showed up and participated in the chat. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experienced perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. It'll always be free to join. All you have to do is follow the links to our Discord on the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website. The benefit of joining through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. Now this week's question, which we'll be discussing on the forum is, how can you test to determine the health of the food web in your own soil? What indicators do you look for to see whether it needs attention and stewardship or that it is functioning optimally? Now, of course, soil is at the very base of the health of all of our terrestrial ecosystems, and I'd love to hear about how you manage its health and resilience on your farm or garden. Don't forget you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests on the Discord forum too. So that's our show for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.